Hello everyone and welcome to episode 106 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'm your host today, as always. We're following on from our episode with Dr Harold Moody, well not with him, about him, um, and thinking about the organisation he founded, the League of Coloured Peoples, which was founded in 1931 in March at the Central London YMCA. Dr. Harold Moody was the president and the founder, and he, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest that you do, but just in case you don't want to, that's fine. Um, He was a Jamaican GP who had a surgery in Peckham, having arrived in 1904 to study medicine at King's College London. He struggled to find work due to the pervasive colour bar that was um, very much operating in Edwardian Britain. Um, And he was denied work in hospitals and in practices uh, and ended up setting up his own. Um, The League of Coloured Peoples was quite notable, contrasting with some of the earlier organisations because it deliberately attempted to become a multiracial organisation where other organisations didn't attempt to do that. Um, They also published a journal. It was called The Keys, first published in the spring of 1933 um, and kind of in line with Moody's own politics, which we really did get into last episode. Um, It stressed black achievement over all else um, and really did look at you as an individual uh, and your own capabilities and achievements and what you could give give back to society and to your people based on you know who you are and what you what you've done intellectually or otherwise um, professionally um, or socially. It was most definitely the case um, that Dr Moody would argue that whilst the colour bar does exist in Britain, and I quote, its existence is contrary to the best traditions of the British people. Um, And he kind of, I guess, grounded the League of Coloured Peoples within this belief that the best of British people in their traditions was not to be racist, which is is fine in a way. but I think when we think about colonialism and we think about the time period in the 1930s that all this was happening in, um, it's a little bit naive in a way um, because Moody would then use this uh, kind of grounding um, to encourage um, black people within the organisation or, or outside of it to kind of adopt behaviours that were deemed respectable or responsible um and these fell into these very traditional kind of ideas of class and gender um and so when you then come to work with working class groups of people and communities when you're holding up these very middle class respectability politics ideas um and ideals um, it's very difficult for that to translate to say, and the example is given in Ansborough Rush's work, um, a black working class community in Cardiff or London. Um, and the argument is that their ideology was, and I quote, far from egalitarian. Um, so essentially, you know, how how well could the LCP serve black people in Britain if A, the ideology was divided, and B, the ideology was built on lies, and C, the ideology was only going to work for a certain class of people. 
Um, you know, it, it still challenged racism, prejudice, the colour bar, empire um, and everything else. But it obviously upholds these really conservative ideals and perspectives which come from Moody's own experience uh, and beliefs. Um, and so, you know, I think maybe I'm looking at, at Moody again through um, a more left-leaning lens. Um, but I think the conservative approach is, is something that's very clear that, that comes through within the League of Coloured Peoples as well. Um, well, despite all of this, you know, it still did great work uh, and it still worked to advocate on the behalf of black people in Britain and across the world. The League of colour peoples. Also the word league. I think it, it already you, you, do you know what I mean? Maybe you don't. Like this idea that it's a league, it's a competition, it's already a hierarchy being established of coloured peoples and coloured uh, obviously being a term of the time, quite ambiguous in regards to um necessarily who could be part of it uh by way of non-white people uh, but as i said at the start it was an organization that was not just uh for black people um but yeah this idea of league creates this idea of a hierarchy and that there's going to be some people that are superior to others um maybe i'm reading into that one a little bit too much but um i think it definitely highlights some of the um hmm, underpinning ideas shall we say Anyway, it was founded with four aims, and number one was to protect the social, educational, economic and political interests of its members. Number two, to interest members in the welfare of coloured peoples in all parts of the world. Number three, to improve relations between the races. Number four, to cooperate and affiliate with organisations sympathetic to coloured people. And five, which was added in 1937, so obviously isn't one of the first four founding aims, but is important nonetheless to render such financial assistance to coloured peoples in distress as lies within our own capacity. Maybe this was as Dr Moody got richer. He was like, we can also add financial assistance to this bill, <laughs> um, which is quite cool, actually. Um, and as you know from the last episode, it did take a while for his practice to kind of get up to a point where it was uh, earning the, the big bucks, shall we say. The League of Coloured Peoples was founded with the support of the Quakers, um, and as I mentioned, it had a kind of multi-racial group, an organisation that was campaigning for full civil rights for black people in Britain um, and began to condemn white supremacy um, and white superiority within empire, um, that being in the Caribbean and Africa and Asia and all over the world, really. Uh, empire was one of those things that was everywhere. Um and I think although it was most definitely a multiracial organisation, um, there was clear intentions that it should be led by black people. As I said, it was a multiracial organisation. However, there was kind of tension on the position of Indian people within the organisation. Um, and, it, and it kind of pushed the ideological differences in opinion um, about people that were non-black but also weren't white so asian people for the most part and how they would fit within the organization um it, there were claims made that the league should accept indian people as members and also engage in the conflict that was happening with the british government on their behalf um especially because there were so many indian people within africa 
And also at the time, it was said around 43% of the population of British Guyana were Indians. And so basically this idea that comes up quite a lot actually um, with Indian people uh, at this time and in the post-war era as well, that we're coming from these countries that you claim to support that is the Caribbean, within the Caribbean and within Africa, um, thinking about Indian people coming from Kenya and Uganda. Um, so there's this idea that, you know, we're coming from this place that you're supporting in regards to anti-imperialism struggles. Um, and so why aren't we then included in said organisation that is fighting against that? Um, however, um, whilst, as I said, it was a multiracial organisation, um, Moody kind of had the intention that it should be led at least by black people even if it was going to fight for the rights of others um and so you know this kind of causes tension um and it wasn't the only ideological standpoint that that would cause tension um throughout but the executive of the league remained mainly west indian with some african people and the occasional asian member um, which I think is probably what Moody intended for it to be um, when he created it and from the outset. The League of Coloured Peoples was actually the first black-legged organisation that gave um, voice to West Indians and West Africans living in Britain, um, which is probably, you know, part of that legacy of, of Moody and why we have to remember him and have to kind of credit the work that he did. It was dominated by him. He was the founder. He was the president. Um, and, you know, a lot of his family members occupied some of the very important and key positions within the League of Coloured Peoples, um, which meant that pe that was kind of people that also had his same or very similar ideological standpoint, background um, and beliefs about the way that things should develop and grow and be shaped in Britain when it came to the position of people of the African diaspora. Um, and I'll just go through kind of some of the people that were a part of it. Um, it also relied quite heavily on women. And Olive Moody uh, was part of the League of Coloured Peoples. Um, his oldest daughter, Christine, um, was the secretary for the League uh, for several years. Una Marson um, was also part, not part of his family, but part of the League and, and speaking to kind of the, the amount of women um, that the administration relied on. Una um, Marson, the Jamaican poet and broadcaster, um, she actually lodged with the Moody's in Peckham when she first arrives in Britain, again, showing the way in which the Moody's would support people um, from the Caribbean, from Africa, uh, on their settling into Britain and, and helping them not just fight racism, but also in, in practical ways like, you know, providing somewhere to stay or, or feeding them or giving them medical attention should they need it. Um, it said that the League of Coloured Peoples offered a more, and I quote, sympathetic home for many black women than did the male-dominated Wasu or the Marxist bodies um, with their often cold, radical rigour. That's Alison uh, Donnell that is kind of describing that um, difference there. And it's something we've spoken about on this podcast before. When I think I did the episode on OAD, uh, Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, um, whereby 
women didn't feel comfortable within the organisations that were fighting for black liberation. Um, and so they created their own. But it's quite interesting that the LCP is actually providing a somewhat sympathetic space for black women um, when it was an organisation, A, founded by a man um, who has quite conservative views and in the pre-war era, so, you know, quite early on in the 1930s. Um, so, all yeah, very interesting points um, about the LCP and the work that was happening and its kind of ideology and the kind of core membership, shall we say, or core executive um, team that was keeping it going. One of the campaigns um, the League of Coloured Peoples worked on, and I won't be able to talk about everything they did today, but this is uh, one of the important ones that comes up a lot, um, is Agri House. Um, and it was a colonial office funded project to establish a hostel for African and African diasporic students in London. Um, you know, it was very clear, we've spoken about this many times before, that Britain loved to uphold the colour bar, even though they all couldn't really say that one existed. Um, and that obviously came to housing as well. Um, and, you know, it was difficult to come by uh, in Britain. And especially the case for students who would come and study. Uh, they wouldn't be there for a long time, but they would still need somewhere to live. Um, there was a thing called colonial clubs, which were open to people of the colonies. Um, but they were better known as sites where colonial, white colonial men could network. However, there was one called the Victoria League, which was founded primarily by women. Um, and it was only opened at the start for people from Malaya and Hong Kong. However, by the late 1930s, it opened up to Africans and West Indians, not without debate, not without, um, I'm not going to say a fight, but a small fight, um, you know, and yeah, at that point, Africans and West Indians could use it as well. Um, and aside from these colonial clubs, there were hostels which were there and opened to cater for the increasing numbers of Indian students in Britain. And so the LCP and the West African Students' Union, WASU, took it upon themselves to establish a place where black colonial subjects could mingle with white people uh, freely, without a colour bar, without prejudice, um, and get to know each other and, and have a space for them to kind of to live, basically, and to find community. Um, you know, they've come to Britain, they're very aware that they're going to be mixing with white people and very fine with that. Um, and so they're kind of given a space to do so in a way at this point. Um, the spaces were not often run by black people. So the fact that there was this space that was run by black people was very significant um, because ownership just didn't really lie with black people at, at the time. Um, but it really did allow them to fight back against these systems of racism with a physical space that they owned. Agri House was a hostel for African and West Indian people that opened up in Bloomsbury, 47 Doughty Street. Um, and on the board of trustees uh, was where Harold Moody sat. Um, essentially, Moody was able to convince the Home Office of this initiative 
by just pointing out the the very important and very honest fact that the British government weren't welcoming colonial students. Um, and I find this is something that came up in like my studies of World War Two. The colonial office and the British government they they like separate entities. And they don't talk so much. And if they do talk, they tend to be getting at each other. So you kind of got to think of them as two independent bodies. And at different times, they uphold racism and segregation in different ways. Like, there's a point where the British government are like, well, absolutely will not be breaking down the colour bar in the armed forces. And the colonial officer are like, you better. Because we've got all these colonial peoples all over the world that want to join so you've got to find a way to appease them, otherwise we're going to get it in the neck. And the British government are like, absolutely not. We just cannot have black people with guns armed on the same level as a white person. And then the colonial officer is like, well, you better. <laughs> they literally are like, you've got to because we will have riots in the colonies. And we cannot deal with that because it will come back to bite you, British government. So they go back and forth. Someone could write a skit about this. Not me, though. Um, but essentially, they kind of have to come to a compromise. And I think this is just another example of that, where the Home Office um, have to be convinced to basically do something about the colonial students that are arriving. Because, and I kind of quote in part, uh, paraphrasing, this would leave them with a bad impression of the home country and raise concerns for future, the future of the empire. At this point, there's not really any conversations about um, the end of empire, shall we say. Um, and so this idea that empire could be, you know, damaged or its reputation could be harmed because of a lack of tolerance in Britain when you know, the whole point of being part of Empire and, and well, not really because they didn't have a choice, but one of the benefits that people, colonial subjects are finding themselves is to be able to study um, degrees in Britain. And if you're taking that away or making that opportunity so difficult to stomach that people don't want to do it and it's untenable, um, that will be a problem and it will cause a problem and it will damage the reputation of empire and the colonial office do not want that. Um, at this point, it's clear they're acknowledging that colour prejudice in the metropole actually might have some damage uh, and cause some damage to uh, the empire and that might have um, negative ramifications in the colonies, um, especially remember the fact that to send your child to university in the UK from say a Caribbean colony is only something that wealthy uh, families were doing it is not that's not a working class um, thing that they can afford to do at that point the way that uh, education is being formalized is quite slow it's not um, consistent across the, the regions in rural areas compared to the cities not everybody has real access to it not everybody is able to go to school let alone secondary school and then university so this is a, a very middle class problem um, you send your child to England to study and then they're treated so badly because of the colour of their skin that they, they hate it so much don't want to come home um, but obviously because these families were prominent and wealthy the colonial office didn't want to piss them off extra extra in an editorial for the magazine the keys which was a publication of the league of colored peoples 
in January 1934, it stated, and I quote, that the LCP is now at a crossroad of its existence. It must either get support or it must curtail its programme, a central meeting place for students in the various colleges of the University of London and the Inns of Court is urgently needed. The WASU also published a short pamphlet entitled The Truth About Agri House in March 1934 and it argued within that that the British government um, has absolute control over the lives of people of African descent in their native lands, which we know through colonisation, and have now deemed it okay to set up this plan whereby they will extend this same control in Britain whilst they're studying. So it's like, you know, the control they have over uh, African people in African lands is is enough, and they're not going to do that here in Britain too to the people studying. But, I mean, I don't really... I don't really like that take because I just feel like they shouldn't even be in African lands anyway, let alone to be here controlling. And also, could you not argue that in Britain they would have a right to have a little bit more control than they do in Africa because they are colonisers? Anyway, just my thoughts of the day. Um, But anyway, it's all besides the point. Um, it was just kind of what was being argued by the different um, organisations that had a part in this. Um, Wasu argued that the ownership of the building should be in the hands of the students. Um, By January 1935, it reportedly had over 50 members um, as a kind of club. By 1937, membership had increased to 236. So it was very popular, you know. It consisted of residential bedrooms um, and I think the average number of residents in 36 was six. 30 members made use of other facilities within the club. There was a library, um, all of which the books had been donated, a music collection, they had periodicals and newspapers that included things that were being published in London, in Africa, in the Caribbean uh, and in America, um, within African-American disciplines and and points of, of journalism. So, you know, it meant that people that were accessing Agri House could actually connect with news all around the world um all around the world in regarding um black people and, and where they were uh, whether that be the caribbean africa or america or or britain um in some cases it said that moody was especially proud um and quite happy with agri house and he wrote in the keys that and i quote of my achievements for the race i regard as by no means the least my association with the organizing committees of agri house i feel that this house will yet play a great part in the future of our race um he was very proud of it clearly unfortunately it temporarily closed in 1940 um and officially closed um the 3rd of may of that year following a disagreement with the house committee i think it was a board of trustees officially closed it down issues arose at agri house um essentially based off of the behavior of um members and it was argued that the manner expected of them to behave by the trustees in the colonial office was not being met um and there were two men peter blackman and desmond buckle from barbados um and the gold coast respectively um who were accused of stirring up trouble among the people the colored people fellow colored people um both had belonged to the league of colored peoples 
but were actually said to be, you know, stirring up trouble, causing problems and starting this like communistic flair, which doesn't sound like an insult to me, but maybe it is or maybe it was. Um, Essentially, their political tone was undesirable to the colonial office um, and actually was such a problem for them that it was one of the reasons for its closure and it's it's been remembered as that. Um, Harold Moody at this point, you know, as I said, his ideology of the LCP is already on shaky ground, but he's he believes in the idea that black people should have freedom of expression. Um, but also he's very much wedded to this idea of social respectability and acceptable behaviour and, and being the best you can within the race. Um, and so he kind of has to decide, like, what's more important, his principles of being socially respectable or his belief that black people should have freedom of expression. Um, and he speaks to the colonial office and he essentially agrees that, the and I quote, the club is being diverted from its proper purposes, which were to provide for students. Um, and kind of this idea that they're, they're being too political. This isn't the conversation that should be going on in here. This is the place for students to find community, to live, to have somewhere to go. Uh, and we don't want Peter Blackman and Desmond Buckle stirring up these communistic flair. <laughs> Um, Moody, of course, sides with the colonial office uh, and falls into his respectability politics bag. Um, And this means that, essentially, the LCP have to then consider taking over the running of Agri House as a colonial office. We're not doing this anymore. Um, Moody said, you know, it would reserve the right to criticise the government, but it wouldn't kind of put the government in a place that they were opposing them as an organisation because they'd rather have cooperation and mutual understanding between these, and I quote, equal partners. I don't know that if there was anything equal about that partnership, if I'm honest, but, you know, if Mr Moody says so. Um, AgriHouse reopened in September 1940, um, but I think at this point it's kind of clear and arguably true or definitely put out by many um that the league of colored peoples were colonial office stooges as they're described um not great for the reputation of the lcp or moody but they're still doing the work so there's like you can criticize the ideology uh, and then the actions of course but on the other side you know they are still campaigning and they are still positively impacting the lives of black people in Britain. In its early days, um, the League acted as more of a social kind of welfare group. It held meetings, it arranged activities, some outings for poor black children in London and also um, West Indian and West African students. Um, And it's kind of providing a sense of community for all these kinds of people. Um, they often challenged uh, racist language within the BBC, in Parliament, in the press, um, and they would write to different departments of the state on major issues. Uh, as we kind of talked about in the last episode, this idea that um, Harold Moody, where a, a left radical would like kick the door down and like demand change, Harold Moody would like politely not wait to be let in and then express the wrongs that need to be righted. And that's kind of what the LCP did, um, essentially. That didn't come from nowhere. Um, 
he also continued to fight for people within the shipping industry and the seafarers living in Cardiff um, and worked within the coloured colonial seamen's union um when it came to 1939 and the beginnings of world war Two and nazi germany and their rise you know he denounced the racial policies of nazi germany um and was keen to be part of that war effort in order to kind of fight back against that in in his own way not that he would be joining the war effort he was at that point too old but his children um, he wanted them to be and he fought to break down the collar bar uh, within the armed forces during World War II, as I've mentioned before. They also worked um, to support uh, black GIs and the discriminatory policies of the US military, uh, the working conditions of black immigrant labour, continued discrimination in housing and the workplace. And also, uh, interestingly, which is something I really want to do an episode on, but got a lot of research to do before I can do that. Um, this idea of illegitimate children of mixed race um, and their kind of future and what they would amount to. There was a lot of conversation about miscegenation, as they called it, and um, there's a lot to be said on their experience, actually, of Britain. Um, but the RCP worked uh, to, to support them as well. Um, their primary focus was on racial politics within the British Empire, um, and, you know, they continued to do that throughout the time that the LCP was running. The League of Coloured Peoples, unfortunately, um, kind of peters out and dissolves in 1951. Harold Moody passes away in 1947. And I think because he'd filled so many of the roles with himself and members of his family, um, it leaves a void in the organisation um there's obviously a leader that takes on after him but it doesn't really last even five years after his death um unfortunately there is also this level of conservatism that he upholds within the ideologies of the lcp um and as political change comes about uh especially after world war Two, um they're left behind a little bit they're not they're not the trendy organization that people want to be a part of politically or otherwise um and i don't think they necessarily were any earlier in regards to their politics solely but now it's it's even less of a thing to be um associated with with conservative politics um i think especially as britain is in a place where it is it's losing the colonies um the commonwealth's been established this idea that there's like a common wealth to be shared out um yeah after decades of of plundering lands and pillaging and yeah mm, makes sense a commonwealth but anyway um despite all the lobbying by the time of harold moody's death and the dissolving of the lcp race relations were very little different from the situation that they had been in maybe 10, 20 years before. Um, that's not to say the LCP didn't do their job. The, the, any organisation to fight racial uh, injustice on their own is absolutely crazy. Um, you know, they could only do what they did. And I'm, I'm sure, and I know, they did make the lives of small groups, 
um, across the board, across the kind of range of black people and black communities um, a little bit better. But as we move forward and we move into the post-war migrations um, that followed from 1947, I think the first ship arrived from the Caribbean, the Almanzoro, the Ormond, um, it's at this point that Britain is is not necessarily in the 40s, but are, are forced to, to sit up and take note of, of racial discrimination and the racial prejudice that's happening. Probably because black people are arriving in bigger numbers um, from West Africa as well. And Indian people are arriving in bigger numbers, people from Pakistan. Um, and so they're kind of forced to, to take note and, and I want to say do better, but realistically, you've been here listening to the episodes about racism in Britain from, like, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So maybe they actually did nothing and they haven't actually done anything to be better. Um, And the League of Coloured Peoples, just like many other organisations, are kind of punching at a brick wall when it comes to British racism. But that's all I'm going to say about the League of Coloured Peoples today. They're an interesting organisation and important because I think the time period in which they're operating in uh, and also because, you know, they don't necessarily fit the bill of the radical left um, politics that, that we're kind of used to when we think about movements for black liberation. So an interesting group uh, to consider. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode and you'll tune in again next week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.